0: My name is Josh Lingle, and uh, in this session, I want to cover the sources for the life of Muhammad. What are the historical sources for the life of Muhammad as we look to understand his biography and the reliability and so on? We just completed this study of Muhammad's life, but so where did all these stories actually come from? The reality is that the Quran provides very little information about Muhammad in general. His name is only actually mentioned four times in the Quran. So it's not a very good book for the biography and to know much about the man, a book that only mentions him four times. Muslim theologians read the Muslim literary tradition that are books that are outside of the Quran to learn more about who Muhammad was. Now, the literary traditions are by far the most numerous and the most detailed accounts of Muhammad's life. And his early followers and those in the 7th century here in these traditions we learn about the life of the prophet muhammad we learn about the magazine or the battles of the prophet at that early age in the history and all that was happening up around that time it's also important to know about these sources because often our muslim friends will raise criticisms and questions about our sources the bible Muslims will ask questions about our manuscripts, and they'll even say that our Bible is tarif or corrupted. So it's important that when Muslims ask such questions that we know how to actually respond to them and answer them. As well, we need to ask them how their Islamic sources stand up to scrutiny, the same scrutiny and the same questions that they're asking about our Bible. Now, in the Bible, there are several kinds of genres, and we have uh, different kinds of historical books, uh, such as Chronicles and Kings. There are different kinds of poetical books, such as the Song of Songs, and there's Gospels, like Matthew and Luke, as well as other kinds of literature. Likewise, in Muslim tradition, we find there's parallels. Uh, these are, there are several types of genres, and there are many different kinds of compilers that bring together these genres connected with these different kinds of books. We don't know all of their authors. Uh, a person writes a compilation by drawing upon the traditions that were available to him at his time. He simply gathers together the best stories of what he knows. And he sifts through these stories, and he throws out those that he doesn't re- uh, deem worthy or reliable. Thus, they themselves, these Muslim historians that compile these different stories, they, uh, they actually uh, become part of the editing and the transmission of the tradition. So let's look at six main genres Uh, the six main genres which are important to Muslims. Let's start with some that you already know. For example, we covered the Sirah. The Sirat Rasulullah is one of the most important types of traditions. As I mentioned to you, that the Sirah is the biography of Muhammad. And in fact, any book which sets out to write about his life is called Sirah. Ibn Ishaq put together the earliest uh, Sira of the prophet in 765-767, and this is over 100 years after he had died. We actually don't have any of Ibn Isak's material anymore. It's 135 years after he died. Uh, a man by the name of Ibn Hisham actually took Ibn Asak's biography and made additions to it. Uh, uh, that's what he says. And, that, and that, uh, this one actually is the oldest Sira or biography that we have existing today. Ibn Hisham's version uh, was written in 833, so 201 years after the time of Muhammad. And uh, we have it in 15 Arabic recensions around the world in different libraries and so on. One scholar says that the editorial activity visible in Ibn Ishaq's Life of Muhammad has raised doubts about the materials collected in its pages. But the Sira remains, together with the Quran, The primary document for reconstructing the life of Muhammad. The next genre is called the tafsir. Tafsir are commentaries on the Quran. They go through each verse of the Quran, telling us what they mean. The tafsir looks at things like grammar. It looks explaining the different meanings of difficult words in the Arabic language. Uh, We saw there's many, many different foreign words of the Quran. They try and explain what these words are from the different languages and so on. It tells us of circumstances of how each verse was revealed to Muhammad and how they're connected with the Prophet's life. Al Tabari is the best known for this genre of tafsir, and he was writing in the year of 923 AD. 923 AD. These dates will be important later. Our next genre is called the Tariq. Now, uh, Tariq is a word for history in Arabic. It tells about past events, and it's usually arranged year by year, and it's written in an analytical way. The history stories, they're not just Islamic. uh, They're meant to be read as a universal history of the whole world. So the Tariq actually begins with the creation with Adam and Eve, and then it goes through and explains about the Jewish and non-Jewish prophets, the Persian rulers, all the way up until the time of Islam. And then the Tariq begins with the life of Muhammad. So part of the Tariq is actually considered sirah, or biography. Uh, the, in English, there's 40 volumes that are translated uh, into, uh, into English, and three of them actually are part of the sirah or the biography of Muhammad. Before Islam, there was uh, no calendar for the Muslim people, so all historical dates begin with the time of the Hijra, and remember that that was when the Muslims migrated, Hijra, from Mecca to Medina with Muhammad. So that was the year of the Hijra. It was the first year of the Hijra calendar and when it, the calendar actually begins. So really the Tariq is the history of the world as seen through the lenses of Islam. It's the theological way that a Muslim will actually look at all history and theology and they look at it through the history of the Tariq. The history that's told is only done so in this genre because it's very much focused in on the Prophet Muhammad and so on, and it has to do with Islamic tradition. Again, al Tabari is the best known in this genre. He was writing again in 923, a very famous scholar, and uh, that's really the, uh, up until Tabari's time, is usually considered one of the classical periods of Islam from 632 up to 923. Now, the next uh, genre is very, very important. It's called the Hadith. And it's perhaps the most important of all the Islamic traditions of the six different Arabic traditions that I'm going to mention in the Quran. Uh, It's only second in authority to the Quran for Sunni Muslims. A Hadith is a report of what the Prophet said or what he did or what he gave his tacit approval to. And it's even something that was done by something someone else and Muhammad says it's okay for them to do so. A hadith is usually divided into two parts. Uh, first, there is the chain of authority uh, called in isnan. And this is a list of people who report it, the tradition, from the time of the prophet or a story, it's reported uh, to, uh, to, uh, to people over time. An isnan goes something like this. So-and-so said to so-and-so, said so-and-so, said to so-and-so, that such-and-such said such-and-such a thing. It has to be passed down from person to person, a person in authority, but it has to, they have to be reliable, they have to be trustworthy, they have to be able to uh, uh, be in the same geographical region, they must have uh, been in the same place or had contact with them, and so this is a person who has never lied and be trustworthy. So it presents an authority for what the Hadith says because it goes all the way back and must go to Muhammad. The second part of the Hadith is what's actually said. So this is called the Matan. So here's an example of a Hadith. Abdullah ibn Yusuf told Bukhari that Malik had told him that Makrma ibn Suleyman had told him that Karib told him that Abdullah ibn Abbas said that he had spent the night in the house of Maimuna, the mother of the faithful believers who was with his aunt. And he said, quote, again, this is telling the story, the Matan, I slept across the bed and Allah's apostle, along with his wife, slept lengthwise. Allah's apostle slept till midnight or slightly before after that. Then Allah's apostle woke up and sat and removed the traces of sleep by rubbing his, his hands over his face. Then he recited the last 10 verses of Surah al-Imran, Surah 2. Then he went towards a a hanging leather water container and performed ablutions and then stood up for, for, for prayer. Abdullah ibn Abbas adds to this tradition, quote, I got up and did the same as Allah's apostle had done and then went and stood by his side. So you see here in this tradition an example of the prophet doing something and the sunnah or the example of Muhammad being followed, namely he gets up, he rubs his eyes, he quotes the Quran, and then he begins to uh, stand up and and go towards prayer, and the Muslim coming behind him and then also being led in prayer. So you see this example of oral tradition and transmission in these Isnads here. A man by the name of al-Shafi, al-Shafi, Imam al-Shafi, Uh, the leader, uh, imam means leader, in the 9th century, was the first who said that all the traditions of law must be traced back to Muhammad for them to be authoritative. Because there were many traditions that were circulating that traced back to Muhammad's companions, people who were around him, but not necessarily back to him. But these traditions were actually rejected. So in the 9th century, uh, these hadiths that went back to Muhammad were collected. And then those testimonies, which seemed authentic, were sorted through by these Muslim uh, scholars and so on from those that were not authentic. There are six authoritative collections of Hadith. And the two most important for you to remember is a man by the name of al-Bukhari. And another man, the second most authoritative uh, traditions of, of the Hadith, is called Muslim. So you'll hear things like, Sahih al-Bukhari, or Sahih Muslim. You'll also hear of another of the four that are included. So you have Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, Dawud, Ibn Majah, Al-Nasai, and Tirmidhi. These make up the six uh, Sitta or Hadith, collections for Sunni Muslims. And it's these collections that are made up of thousands of short reports. They're extremely important in Sunni Islam as sources for creating Islamic law, Sharia. Though the Hadith uh, Muslims learn that what Muhammad did and from these reports they, they, they create the law and it governs how a Muslim's supposed to act and what they base on Muhammad's example, the Sunnah. So in theory the Hadith is second in authority to the Quran in that they contain God's words. Thus, they constitute a a form of direct revelation outside of the Quran. The Hadith does, the Sunnah does, and so on. But in practice, the Hadith is above the Quran. And this is because, as we'll see, the Quran is so short and it's so limited in what it says. It's only the size of the New Testament. The Hadith is very important uh, in that from the Hadith, Muslims derive the Sunnah or this example and how they should live. The Sunnah is the example of Muhammad, and Islamic law is based on what he did and what he said. The Tabakat is our next genre, and the Tabakat is a collection of biographies of the pious Muslims, those who were his companions who are around him. These companions are called the sahaba. Uh, those who were around Muhammad at the time. And they're quoted in the Hadith Isnats, those chain of transmitters. Well, that's where they're actually quoted. So these are governors, they're soldiers, they're religious rulers, um, sometimes they're Muhammad's wives. Uh, they're quoted as having heard or seen Muhammad do something. And the reason that the biographies are are written about them is to show that they can prove their testimonies about Muhammad, that we can know that they're trustworthy because they're pious, good Muslims. Ibn Sayyid is the primary compiler of the Tabakat. Uh, There are others, uh, but he wrote nine volumes, and uh, and you can, uh, for those of you English speakers, all of these genres are available in English as well, in translations. The next genre is called fiqh. Now fiqh is, uh, is a science of Islamic law. The word fiqh is, can be used to describe a book or theory or detail of Islamic law. The law itself or the whole body of the law is called the Sharia. And uh, Islam has been described as primarily a religion of law, primarily a religion of what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do, it's Sharia. So this is, this is a very important books. The idea is that the sources of Islamic law are the Quran and the Sunnah. The Sunnah, again, is the example of Muhammad. So it's derived from the Hadith, and it describes all those things which the Quran just simply doesn't discuss. So these are reports about what Muhammad did and what he said, and he serves as these models for all Muslims so that they can follow and be sure that f- they're following God in the right way. From Muhammad's example, al-Shafi helped to develop Islamic law which sets out to help the Muslims learn how to carry out their day-to-day lives. It's very sp- specific. At times, uh, it will even go and explain how a Muslim's supposed to go to the bathroom based on what Muhammad did. So, uh, though al-Shafi is the most famous for the Islamic law, uh, there are several other books or traditionists of, is- of Islamic law that Muslims will follow. They all differ from each other, but the four main, what are called madhabs, the four schools of Islamic law, are all named after Muslim scholars of the 8th and 9th century. For example, the four schools of law are the names of them are Maliki, Hanbali, Hanafi, and Shafi. Uh, these are the four, um, take a moment and say that four times fast. Hanbali, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi. Okay. Okay, good job, good job. These schools of law may be compared to something like Christian denominations. Um, They're not that diverse from each other, but they are somewhat diverse. They basically take the same source material, uh, the Hadith and so on, and they draw different conclusions on points of law. In other words, the existence of various schools demonstrates that not all issues of Muslim life and practice may be answered the same way. In fact, in modern days, as they've moved away from the four madhabs, or schools of Islamic law, in modern day, many Muslims just go to refer to uh, the, the traditions of what Muhammad said or did, and what the, what the Quran says, and so on, trying to, pl- to apply the Quran and the Sunnah. From these, uh, people in the modern day try and resolve issues, like can... Uh, Since cars didn't exist in, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia in the 7th century, can 20th century or 21st century Muslims drive cars in Saudi Arabia today? So from these, they try and derive fatwas. Fatwas are religious opinions that are given to people who are asking questions about Islamic law and questions of Islamic law. Now in general, there are some things that all of these sources have in common. First, we possess a, a fair number of all these works the Hadith, the Sirah, the Tafsir, the Tariq, the Tabakat, Rijal, etc. The general characteristics of these sources is they're all very, sim, uh, very similar. Their authors were compiled who drew on a mass of uh, earlier literature which is mostly lost. Good Muslim compilers are responsible scholars who tell us who they got their materials from. And this allows us to try and reconstruct some of the sources in which they're using. The compilers of these traditions are free to use the words they want reproducing their sources. They don't need to fully quote the person who said Muhammad said or he did something. They also don't have to mention if they left the words or phrases out. So they have a great deal of freedom in how they actually present, create, change, embellish, the history itself. Now normally, the authors of these sources will quote in units of a few lines to a couple of pages at a time. They f- will frequently switch to a, a different source uh, for their information, which means that you and I are left in the dark as to the overall structure of where they actually got their information. Now, remember that these authors of these traditions use the testimonies of men who heard something by someone, who were told something by someone else. Then they compile these testimonies and write them down in one book. The nature of the Islamic tradition requires that a compiler cites men, not books, mentions their names. Uh, so they're not quoting footnotes or bibliographies and things like that. They're mentioning the names of a particular transmitter or a scholar. The transmission of these stories about Muhammad or about history is all oral tradition. It's all oral by word of mouth. Now, as you may begin to see, that there are real problems with the Islamic traditions. What I'm going to present to you now is not a Christian critique about the Islamic traditions and writings. These problems are historical problems that we have with the Islamic tradition. If any historian, were to take a look at the Islamic traditions, they would ask these questions to determine whether they're trustworthy. So let's pretend that we're historians for a moment. The question uh, we would first ask is, when and where were these pieces of literature actually written? Well, if they're surrounding Muhammad's life, I would uh, assume that they're written while he was living, right? Or perhaps soon after his death. They'd have to be written by eyewitnesses, who saw or what he said or, or, or did, uh, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those who are eyewitness who wrote about Jesus' life? Are these people that are with Muhammad passing transmissions down of Istan's, are they actually at the time of Muhammad's life? The answer is no. Now, in the historical study of written materials, when scholars look at uh, historical sources, They have two kinds of sources. The first kind of source is what is called a primary source. These materials uh, tend to have direct access to the event itself. They can see what happened. Secondly, there are secondary sources, those materials which tend to be more recent and are dependent on the primary sources. So what are the sources that we have to reconstruct a history of Islam? When do you think all of this material was written? Well, we've already talked about it already. For the Sirah, the biography of Muhammad, Ibn Ishaq is the first person who wrote down the story of Muhammad's life at the request of the, the caliph. Ibn Ishaq died in 767. So if Muhammad died in 632 AD and Ibn Ishaq died in 767 AD, then we have 135 years difference from the time that Muhammad lived to the time that Ibn Ishaq lived. Now, we're talking about 135 years later, but something that poses an even bigger problem is that we don't have any of Ibn Ishaq's material. They don't exist anymore. We, do, we know that he wrote it down because people say so, but we have to depend on a man by the name of Ibn Hisham. He, we get his syrup, and he, Ibn Hisham, died, he was writing in 833 AD. So Ibn Hisham took Ibn asaq's material, that's what Ibn Hisham says, and said, said that, he's, that a lot of it just didn't make sense to him. So he only kept that, which he considered to be authentic. So he took Ibn Asak's material and wrote it down into what he, we have today known as the Seer of the Prophet that is 201 years after the time of Muhammad's death. The Quran doesn't really talk about Muhammad, again, as I mentioned. It only mentions his name four times. So Ibn Hisham's text of the Sirah is, is the only source we really have to go back to that period where it first lays out the biography of Muhammad. So the historians, they would look at a question like this, they'd look at these sources in the Sirah and say, wait a minute, The Sira is not a primary source. It's a secondary source. Now, there has been some scholarship that has gone on uh, in past years where they try and compare the Isnads in the chain of transmitters with the Matan, with the text itself. And in the past 20, 30 years, they've tried to say, okay, these are common Isnads and common stories, and so maybe, perhaps, we can get them down to compare them to be 90 AD or something earlier and so on. But in general, they're still very far removed from the event and still are very challenging for historians to understand where the sources come from. And we're not dealing with texts at that time. We're actually just putting together different traditions from different books. And so it's, it's, it's not at all clear that we can build a biography at all from these sources. So let's look at the Hadith now. And, ex- and see what the Hadith explains, what Muhammad did and what he said, and what he gave his tacit approval to. From Islamic law uh, is derived uh, from these traditions. We are, are talking about the Hadith materials. And of course, Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, Dawud, Ibn Majah, al-Nasai, Tirmidhi. These are the ones that were the six most authoritative uh, Hadith collections. There's more than those six, but these are the primary texts that a Sunni Muslim would go to. Uh, as uh, as canonical for for their uh, for the eighty five mu- uh, percent of Muslims in the world, or even the Shiites have four other traditions uh, of of collections of hadith that are all Shiite uh, collections of hadith that all have isnads that must go back to Ali, and not necessarily uh, to any other companion. But looking at the Sunni, focusing in on the Sunni traditions, if we look at uh, Sahih al-Bukhari, for example, and you look at his dates. He was writing between 850 and he died in 870 A.D. He was compiling all these stories in histories. But think about that. If Muhammad died in 632 A.D. and uh, Sahib Bukhari dies in 870 A.D., that's, over, that's 250 years later. If you contrast that with what we have from the New Testament and the Gospels, and we try and access who the historical Jesus is in that sense, The Matthew, Mark, and Luke fit very well within that first century context. We have manuscripts from Matthew 26. It's called the Maudlin Manuscript, as we've gone before. Josh McDowell will talk about these. Jay Smith will talk about the evidence uh, and the biblical authority we have uh, in their classes as well. But these can all be dated back to 68 AD, AD, which is 30 years uh, beyond Christ's death. What is amazing is that jesus lived 600 years before muhammad and yet we have eyewitness testimony of his life within 30 years in paul's letter to the corinthians he quotes a hymn in chapter 15 about 500 who actually witnessed his resurrection and this account was written uh written jesus resurrection this account was only was written two years after the event it would be much more likely that we would have eyewitness testimony about Muhammad's life today, but we don't. We have secondary sources that are all based on traditions that are 250 years after the time of his event, especially the most authoritative ones, the canonical ones that we're talking about. Uh, Bukhari, Muslim, Daud, Ibn Majah, Al-Masai, Termini. These ones are all very late into the 9th century. Now next we can examine the tafsir and the tariq in the genre. Uh, we have different uh, different groups, the uh, different writers, uh, as we mentioned, Al-Tabri. Um, he was the most authoritative of the Tafsir and the Tariq. But when you look at the date of when al Tabari died, it was 923 AD. And that's well into the 10th century. The amazing thing is that al Tabari was not only writing history books about Muhammad's life over 250 years after he lived, but he was writing ancient history about Adam and Abraham. Now, as historians, we asked the question when were these, histories, uh, these historians actually writing? Now we do, uh, what we want to do is look and ask where these authors were actually writing these traditions from. Were these writers actually from Arabia? And the answer is no, they were not. In fact, many of them were not even Arabs. We can discover this by just looking at the names of the men that were compiling together these texts. For example, Al Bukhari, Al Waqidi, Ibn Hisham, Al Tabari. These are not Arab names at all, they are Persian names. They're all coming from places in Iran and in Iraq. For example, Bukhari, Bukharistan. That's where the name Bukhari comes from. Tabari, Tabaristan is from Iran. That's where the name Al Tabari comes from. So in Iraq and Iran are hundreds of miles away from Arabia. How how can non-Arabs who lived hundreds of years after Muhammad write historical texts and compile together the accurate texts of these traditions when they don't even live in the area? So what we're saying here, and what scholars over the m- last many years, Goldzeher uh, and uh, Schott and others have raised questions about the historicity of these sources, different scholars that have ex- existed, uh, Goldzeher back in uh, 1899 and Schott in the 1960s, uh, that all these primary sources that we possess in Islam are so late that in actuality they are secondary sources. Also, much of them were not even written in the same geographical location as the inception of Islam. Everything that we know about Muhammad, everything that we know about early Meccans, everything that we know about the Medinans, everything we know about all this history where Islam arose and how it reformed and all the histories that were going on behind Muhammad's life, all of that does not come from Muhammad's time or his time period, or his country. It doesn't even come from the first century after Muhammad. It doesn't even come from the century after that. It comes from somewhere around two centuries after. And that's where these uh, these six authoritative hadith collections come from, much later. Now is that a problem? Well, that would, it certainly is a problem because that would be like writing a whole commentary on something like the French Revolution in 1789 and have no notes for it. So if the Hadith and the Sirah, other traditions, are all secondary sources, and where are the primary sources? The ones that have direct access to the historical events of Islam itself. And, and though we, find, we have found certain archaeological finds that can reconstruct, and I'm not saying uh, we're d- doubting the denial and the existence of Muhammad at all, but when Muslims are challenging the historicity and the veracity of the historical Jesus, the assumption is, is that all of these late, later uh, ninth century sources and so on are absolutely authoritative, absolutely reliable, and it happened because of these traditions, have Isnads and so on. And, uh, and uh, this just can't be uh, verified by history. Uh, w- uh, certainly scholars have not come to those conclusions. But I wanna lead on into our third question as historians. Where did these, uh, these Islamic uh, compilers actually get their source material? Well, the Muslims are gonna tell us that oral tradition, uh, again, that these were pious companions of Muhammad who heard him say or do something and they pass this information down, on down through history. Uh, there was an oral tradition that was transmitted. And now, as a historian, uh, this is how we could actually respond to our Muslim friends. You know, many times Muslims will, will doubt the, the historicity of the Bible in some of these examples, saying that, you know, oral tradition is, is problematic and so on with the, with the Old Testament. Now, when we look at the Islamic oral tradition, uh, of course, uh, we have to ask the question can we actually trust it? How do we know if all these stories are true and know that they were written down? And then, of course, the more difficult question is why were these stories not written down? Why don't we actually have any of these traditions written down from the 7th century? Why don't we have anything written back in the time when Muhammad was living? Well, the Muslims would respond that these are Arabs. They were illiterate and they did not have a literary tradition. Uh, The late date of the tradition is due to the fact that writing was simply not used in Arabia at that time. The Arabs were storytellers, and these in Arabic are called the kusas. And anyway, the uh, transmission is reliable because they have these isnads, those chain of transmitters, that show that they were passed to reliable people, and therefore the tradition is trustworthy. The historian's response to that would be uh, a response to the claim that there was no literary tradition in early Islam. It's refuted by the fact that the first Muslim dynasty, the Umayyads, Uh, which existed from 660 to 750, uh, was headquartered in the sophisticated former Byzantine area of Syria, not Arabia. There, they did have a literary tradition. How come we have nothing written down from that time? The Muslims were in control of that. Whether they were storytellers or not, oral tradition poses obvious problems, and that's how we get early legends that are born. Uh, that 's uh if you ever have ever played uh, the games i't maybe in your country i 'm not sure what they call it, but uh, in different countries they call it telephone or Chinese whispers or different different ways but basically how the game goes is like this: a group sits in a circle and you begin with me and then I whisper it to the person next to me in their ear, and then they whisper it to the person next to them in their ear, and they go all the way around. Uh, the room until it comes back to maybe 20 of us around the room and within five minutes you can imagine what happens with these embellishments start happening and the, and the story gets all wrong. So if that happens with passing on tradition and the stories begin to grow, then in what, the question is what happens with oral tradition in the Islamic context within 200 years within the tradition? Now, as we will see, I will go into very specific examples of how that oral tradition changes later on in this discussion. So it's not just a theory. You can actually see the the massive embellishments that goes on in the Islamic historical tradition and those stories. So oral tradition in the Islamic sense is far from being the most trustworthy way of preserving Islamic history. That isn't what happened. Now, the Isnads are a problem as well. Uh, two, sh- uh, two scholars, as I mentioned, called Shat and Goldzeher uh, uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries doubted how much of the Isnads have helped. You see, one could make up an Isnad, a chain of transmitters, just as easily as one can fabricate and make up a Hadith. If one wants to have authority for their Hadith and for their tradition, they would simply have to attach an authenticated Isnad to it with names of respectable Muslims found in the Tabakat, and then their tradition would be authoritative. It would be Sahih or something like that. So this is a problem. As we mentioned earlier, though, uh, through al-Shafi, the science of Istan was only uh, in the beginning in the ninth century. And this is a relatively late date to come up with the concept since it's more than 200 years after the time Uh, of Islam and at the time of the prophet. Now, the fact is that if we cannot trust in Isnad, a chain of transmitters, to know that each one of them is reliable, we can't in any way verify it, certainly have no videotape of it, etc., then we cannot trust the tradition and the matan and the hadith itself. So then where is our Sharia. When we continue to ask Muslims whether where their writers actually got their materials for their tradition, we're told that we don't have them anymore because whatever was written down early disintegrated over time because you know these materials were that they were written on, they they disintegrate, the you know, and so on, the leaves are not here. And so the historians would also respond to this. Well, I don't think that's a good explanation. We have written documents in the British Library, for examples, of manuscripts from Um, communities close to Arabia that are hundreds of years older than the Islamic manuscripts, uh, if those are still around, and if something was written in Arabia at the time of Muhammad, it should still be around too. Also, we have the New Testament manuscripts themselves. For example, the Codex Sinaiticus, the Codex Alexandrinus, the Codex Washingtonius, the Bodmer Papyrus, all of those which were written in the 4th century, 300 years before Islam. We have 230 manuscripts that actually predate the Quran. So why aren't those disintegrated? You can see why uh, we and other historians are asking these kinds of questions. Historical experts on Islam are just saying, hold on a minute, why is it that we're trusting all that Muslims are saying? These hundreds of thousands of traditions, all of them, why are we just trusting that they are, as Muslims say, they are what actually happened? Why is it that we're trusting these and we don't, Consider them fabricated stories at a later date from these later traditions, so on. That the most authoritative canonical traditions that I've mentioned are two to 300 years later than Muhammad's time. And that they were not even written by Arabs. They're mainly written by Persians. Ultimately, in the end, we do not know where the eighth and ninth century compilers actually obtained their material. We only can get where they say they got it from. One scholar, uh, from uh, uh, from Princeton University, uh, Patricia Crona calls re- the religious tradition of Islam quite possibly more a monument of the destruction of Islamic history, of Muslim history, than the evidence of its faithful preservation. Now, the reason we have uh, looked at these uh, concerns is because millions of Muslims base the way they live their lives day to day on these teachings of these traditions. This is where they get their religious teachings from. Most of them are uh, not aware of these problems with the trustworthiness of these traditions. As well, many Muslims raise the same kinds of questions about the reliability of our Bible and our sources. Now, we've looked at some of the historical evidence, which has uh, told us that the traditions lack credibility for the most part. Again, we're not denying that there's a core or kernel that Muhammad existed. I think Muhammad existed. But when Muslims are challenging the historical Jesus and trying to say, oh, he wasn't the son of God, he wasn't crucified, he didn't rise from the dead, he didn't provide salvation, forgiveness of sins because we can't trust any of your historical manuscripts, then we have to throw the same question back at their Islamic traditions. How do we trust anything that you say about Islam whatsoever? All of your traditions, therefore, on the criterions you're using are embellishments and they have problems. So... uh, the, this, uh, what I want to do now is, after looking at these historical evidences, is I want to look at some interesting examples that come from the traditions which provide further concerns for us. Now, this has to do with the problem within the sources and the prol- proliferation of these sources. Now, over the first couple centuries after Muhammad, we see that a number of traditions and stories rapidly increased. And this is very important. And this is what scholars call a mushrooming effect. When you see, uh, for example, mushrooms grow or, or they expand uh, over time, that they multiply in, in a place, maybe you've seen them in the ground, lots of mushrooms show up all the time, just like the Islamic traditions started to. Ibn Ishaq's Sirah, or biography of the Prophet, was the most popular uh, at that time. However, later pop, uh, biographies about Muhammad's life began to appear in the second half of the 8th century. One of these biographies was a man by the name of Al-Waqidi. Now he died in 823, so Ibn Asak was writing in 767. And in comparing, when you compare their stories, Al-Waqidi with Ibn Asak's material and other earlier compilers, we can clearly see how the traditions about Muhammad's, uh, Muhammad actually increased over time. Let's take an example of the same narrative from several different biographers of Muhammad. So the question that they're trying to answer in the stories about Muhammad in in these biographies was, how did Abdullah, the father of Muhammad, how did he die? Okay, so that's an important question. How did he die? Now, Ibn Asak, the earliest biographer, tells us these important facts. Abdullah died while his wife was pregnant with Muhammad, or when Muhammad died was 28 years old, or 20, sorry, 28 months old. But God knows best, which is right. So basically, Ibn Asak doesn't know exactly when Muhammad's dad died. Mamar, who is later than Ibn Asak, tells us that, a a different story, Abdullah died while Muhammad was still in the womb. He also adds more to the story, and a short account of the circumstances surrounding Abdullah's death. He says that Abdullah had been sent by his own father, Abdul Mutalib, to lay down and die in a place where dates are stored in the city of Yathrib. So there's more details, and that's helpful. A 9th century compiler, who is also after Ibn Asak, uh, quotes two Islamic scholars that Abdullah died when Muhammad was 20 months, uh, 28 months old, or perhaps 27 months. So the conclusion to be drawn from this range of opinions of different traditions is that scholars of the first half of the eighth centuries were agreed that Abdullah had died early enough to leave Muhammad an orphan, but as to the details, God knows best. Now, al Waqidi is writing fifty years after Ibn Asak, and he says that his his account of Abdullah's death is the best. So we gotta trust Waqidi. Okay because he somehow knows that Abdullah had gone to Gaza on a business trip he had fallen ill on the way back so he left his caravan he was then cared for by his family in the city of Yathrib he then died in Yathrib Waqidi also knows Abdullah's precise death and where he was buried and this all took place not when Muhammad was 28 months old or 27 uh, months but as the earlier compilers explained, but Abdullah died when Muhammad was still in his mother's womb. So Waqidi tells us not only when Muhammad, Muhammad's father died, but also how he died, where he died, what his age was, of the exact place of his burial. The question is this How can Al Waqidi pronounce that his version's the best when he's living fifty years after the time of Ibn Asak, who is, by the way, already According to Ibn Hisham's uh, traditions, uh, recension is 201 years after the time of Muhammad. And how does Waqidi have more detail and information than those earlier biographers? What this suggests is that a fair amount of what Waqidi knew was not knowledge or actually historical. Now, what Muslim polemicists will do is they will actually attack the Christian scriptures and they'll say, okay, in one gospel, it says that there's only one angel at the tomb. Or in this other gospel, it says there's only two angels at the tomb. So how do you actually resolve that this is a contradiction? The Bible's corrupted and so on. And they don't look at their own traditions. They don't look at their own Quran and traditions and actually see these same kinds of issues of per- perspectives and so on exist within the sources. And it's important to raise it with them when they try and raise 100 contradictions in the Bible. Well, you can find 101 contradictions in the Quran. So it's important to both respond to those issues which are in the biblical text, but also to be able to assess the Islamic traditions where uh, they are not assessing it with the same scales. Now, the mushroom effect is also seen in the sheer number of Hadiths, which suddenly appear in the 9th century. By the mid mid-ninth century, there were 600,000 stories about the prophet. Tradition has it that there were so, they were so numerous that the caliph, or the ruler of the Muslim community at the time, asked Bukhari to actually collect together the true sayings of the prophet from these 600,000 traditions which existed. So in the end, Bukhari kept only 7,397 traditions and that's only 1.2% of all the traditions that exist of those 600,000. So according to Bukhari, 99% of all those traditions were not trustworthy and they were thrown away. That means that 592,603 traditions were actually false and had to be thrown out. Now does that bother you? It bothers me. When Muslims are are challenging our Bible or challenging our scriptures and they're not being uh, knowledgeable or or focusing in on their own traditions and their own problems with their traditions. Then there's, there's the example very important of Ibn Abbas. This has to do with the Isnads, all the traditions that are authoritative, that go back to the companion of Muhammad. One of the most authoritative and most important companions was Ibn Abbas. A hadith compiler by the name of Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he was one of those uh, four schools of law, Hanbali, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, Hanbal. Ahmed ibn Hanbal is a Hanbali. He was, the, he was the leader of the Hanbalis. And uh, he was a compiler that lived in 850 AD. Ahmed ibn Hanbal attributed that there was 1,710 traditions that went back to this man, the uh, great interpreter of the Quran, Ibn Abbas. Yet 50 years before Ahmad ibn Hanbal, before his compilation, one scholar estimated that Ibn Abbas had only heard nine traditions from Muhammad. Another scholar in a different compilation says that Ibn Abbas had only heard 10 traditions from the prophet. So somehow, Ahmed ibn Hanbal knew of 1,700 more traditions than the scholars who lived 50 years before him. How is it possible that uh, fifty in 50 years, 1,700 more traditions from Ibn Abbas would be discovered? How do they come on the scene? And so even if we were to accept that 10 of these traditions were trustworthy, how could we even know which ones were out of a pool of 1,710 traditions from Akhman Ibn Han, uh, Hanbal's collection? So again, there's this, this, this clear mushrooming effect of where we see numbers of traditions that are multiplying all over the place and a point where we just simply don't know which ones are real and which ones are not real and which ones are fabricated. Now, another problem we would have as a historian is this, that the Islamic traditions contradict each other so much that we cannot know what really happened historically because of the, the numerous contradictions that are found and these are found throughout these, again, Sahih traditions or these historical traditions. Let's run through some of the traditions to gain an idea of the contradictory nature of the biographies that have been written. There are numbers of stories uh, in the sources which all talk about, for example, Muhammad meeting a representative of a non-Islamic religion who recognizes Muhammad to be a future prophet to come. That's a common story that Muslims will tell, that others, Jews and Christians, recognized him to, to come. So according to one set of traditions, this encounter took place when Muhammad was a small child in the care of his foster mother. So if I'm a historian, I write it out. He was a small child in the care of his foster mother. According to another set of traditions, this encounter took place when Muhammad was nine years old. In another set of traditions, it says that he was actually 12 years old. In another set of traditions, the encounter took place when he was 25 years old. He was identified as a prophet by Ethiopian Christians who wanted to kill him, or by a seer at Mecca who wanted to take him away or by a nameless monk in a nameless place, or by Bahira, a Christian monk in the city of Basra, or by Bahra, a Jewish rabbi. In these versions, the Jews or Greeks are after him with the results that he has quickly taken away. And in this story, he is recognized as a future prophet because he is an orphan, or because the redness of his eyes, or because he sat under a certain tree or because a combination of these. It's clear that scholars looking at this see some uh, accounts that are, represent some 15 different versions of the same event. But which one of them's true? Which one of them's right? So the fact is, is that you could say all of them are right, but they're all contradictory traditions. It couldn't have happened at such a young age, and to, uh, at, at a young child, and five and seven and 11, 25, and so on. No one can write a biography about Muhammad and say that all the de- these details actually occurred historically. They're, they're fabrications and nobody, it seems that the information and details are simply lost. So we cannot formulate a real understanding of what happened. So here's another example. There's a verse in the Quran uh, or surah in the book of the Koresh and the verse reads, says for the ilaf of the Quresh." Their ilaf of the journey in the winter or summer. Now, of course, the Quraysh were Muhammad's tribe, and this verse is talking about them taking a journey. And the meaning of the ilaf is not translated because its meaning is uncertain, and the context of the verse of the Quran gives us no indication of what the journey actually is. But if we turn to the Islamic traditions, we find some of the answers. Most of the authors agree that the Quraysh were going on a trading journey, but here is where, the question is, where did they end up going? Some sources say this verse rever- uh, refers to trading journeys to Syria in the summer and to Yemen in the winter when Syria was too cold. Others say to Syria in the winter and to Yemen in the summer when the route to Syria was too hot. And Now, these are completely different, opposite explanations of what we just read. Uh, Imam Waqidi says, They went to Syria in the summer and Ethiopia in the winter. Still other sources say they went to Syria in the summer and to Yemen, Ethiopia, and Iraq in the winter. So in the end, we do not know where they actually went. No, we don't know at all. Either the traditions are contradicting themselves or saying totally different geographical locations. With what we have seen so far, I think it's clear to say that the Islamic traditions are not trustworthy on many of these points and in understanding the true history of what happened in Muhammad's life or at the time of early Islam. They're written too late. They're written by non-Arabs. Uh, They're contradictory and seem to grow over time, mushrooming effect and so on. So what do you think about the fact that the traditions not only try to write history about Islamic events, but they also try and write about events that were thousands of year before Muhammad ever existed? Does that bother you? It bothers me, especially when they're doubting the credibility of the Bible and its preservation of those who had recorded those stories over history. Uh, Muhammad's right uh, would have been in 632 AD when he died, but these traditionists are writing uh, hundreds of years after his death, and they seem to have a better historical understanding, in their opinion, uh, of Islamic history than they do in trusting the Old and New Testaments. So here are some examples. In Mecca, in Saudi Arabia, you'll find this big black temple called the Kaaba. And it's the most holy place for Muslims. And thousands visit it every year on the pilgrimage. But where did the Kaaba actually come from? Well, one tradition says that Abraham was commanded to erect this Kaaba or after he had cast out Hagar. But another tradition says that the Kaaba was built by Adam. So which was it? Was it Abraham or did Adam actually build this Islamic temple in Saudi Arabia? As Christians, we would say neither. We know that according to the Bible, Abraham lived in the land of Canaan, which is in present day Israel. uh, And that's quite far from Saudi Arabia. And we'll see uh, in the talks on the Quran that all of the Jewish patriarchs and prophets are basically Islamicized. And uh, to show that Muhammad is in the line of the prophets, they all look like Muhammad. The Islamic tradition also states that Adam was so tall that he could listen to the songs of the heavenly hosts about the throne of the Lord. Well, that's pretty tall. But how tall was Adam? Well, when you go to Sahih al-Bukhari in the Hadith, it says that Adam was 100 feet tall. That's pretty tall. If you go to Sahih Muslim in his Hadith, which are both sahih, they're both accepted, they're both canonical, etc., it says Adam was 180 feet tall. When Adam sinned, he was cast out of of heaven, and he also shrank in height, and so he could no longer listen to the angels in heaven. But where was Adam cast down to? Well, one tradition traced back to Ibn Abbas says Adam was cast down to India. Another transmission traced back to Ibn Abbas says Adam was cast down to a place between Mecca and Taif. Now these are two, India and Mecca, these are two very different geographical locations, both quoted by one man, Ibn Abbas, who heard it from Muhammad. And he's, Ibn Abbas is supposed to be the most, one of the most authoritative people in the Istans. There are many traditions relating to Abraham sacrificing his son to Allah. And this story exists in Islam too. They have uh, al Tabari quote several of these traditions in his Tariq or his history according to Islam. And you will see that in volume two of al Tabari, he is trying to determine which son it was who was sacrificed. Was it Isaac or was it Ishmael? So according to Al-Hussein in one of these traditions, uh, the, in the Isnads and the chain of transmitters of al Tabari. It says according to As Al Hussein, who heard it from Yazid from Tahan, who heard it from Ibn Idris, from Daud from Ibn Hind, uh, who heard it from Ikrimah, who heard it from Ibn Abbas, that the one who Abraham was ordered to sacrifice was Isaac. So now it's very clear who the son was. Another tradition says, according to Ibn al-Mustan, who heard it from Ibn Abi. Uh, Adi, who heard it from Dawud, who heard it from ikrama who heard it from Ibn Abbas, again, the quote, then we ransom him with a tremendous victim, refers to Isaac. Another tradition. According to Yaqub, who heard it from Ibn Uliya, who heard it from Dawud, who heard it from ikrama who heard it from Ibn Abbas, that the victim was Isaac. So that settles it. The son that Abraham was required to sacrifice was Isaac, right? Ibn Abbas is the one who heard it from Muhammad in all these traditions, but wait, there's still more. al Tabari goes on to write other traditions. According to Ibn Bashar, who heard it from Yahya, who heard it from Sufyan, who heard it from Bayan, who heard it from Al-Shabi, who heard it from Ibn Abbas that the son we ransomed him with the tremendous victim refers to Ishmael. Wait a minute. Let's read another tradition. According to Ibn Humayyad, who heard it from Yahya ibn Wadi, who heard it from Abu uh, Hamza, Muhammad ibn Maimun, al-Sakari, who heard it from Atta ibn al-Sayyib, who heard it from Sayyid ibn Jubair, who heard it from Ibn Abbas, remember him, the one who Abraham was commanded to sacrifice was Ishmael. So which is it? (laughs) Who did God command Abraham to actually sacrifice? Was it Isaac or was it Ishmael? Well, Ibn Abbas thinks that it's Isaac in one instance in about 30 different instances and thinks it's uh, Ishmael in about 50 other instances, and you can find that in volume two of al-Tabri. But uh, Tabri is not trying to hide the contradictions in the history. He actually explains that it's right there. Remember, Ibn Abbas is supposed to be one of the most reliable sources of many of the traditions in Muslim history. But again, these traditions are so contradictory 50 on one side, 30 on the other side, they totally disagreed. They didn't understand what history was in 923. They didn't know who the sun was. They all disagreed. They had 80 different sources and they're all contradictory. Not only do we find historical references to events that are found thousands of years before Islam, but we also find other odd pieces of information. There are numbers of these strange and popular uh, traditions. In the hadith of Sahih Al Bukhari, in book uh, in in volume number four, uh, Akbar five sixteen, and in the hadith of Sahih Muslim, in volume one uh, of his ten volume set, in, in Akbar four sixty two, we read that Satan lives in your nose, and that's actually why we see or why we sneeze. So here we find traditions that's trying to explain natural phenomenon supernaturally. There's a warning in the authoritative tradition of Muslim in volume 1, Akbar 863, that if Muslims look up to the sky when they pray, their eyes will pop out of their head. Now that's rather disturbing. (laughs) So uh, don't do that. So we're told in Bukhari in volume 4, 537, and in uh, volume 7, 673, that if a fly lands in your food or your drink, you should, uh, you should eat it or dip it in all the way. And that's because one wing of the fly actually has poison on it, but the other wing actually has healing on it. So they cancel, e- they cancel each other out. You believe that? The last one I wanna share is about Moses. And uh, again, we're talking about somebody who's writing in the ninth century or, or Muhammad is saying this in 632, AD or something, writing about people that exist thousands of years ago. So Bukhari writes in volume 4 in tradition 616, it reads like this quote, Moses was a shy person and used to cover his body completely because his, of his extensive shyness. One of the children of Israel hurt him by saying, quote, He covers his body in this way only because of some defect in his skin, either leprosy or a scrotal hernia or he has some other defect, end quote. All wished to clear Moses of what he had said about him. So one day while Moses was in seclusion, he took off his clothes and put them out on a stone and started taking a bath. And when he had finished the bath, he moved towards his clothes so as to take them. But the stone took his clothes and fled, he ran away. Moses picked up a stick and ran after the stone saying, stone, O oh stone, give me my garments till he reached a group of the tribe of Israel and, he saw him, and they saw him naked there and found him the best of what Allah had created. And Allah cleared him of what he accused him of, of having a skin defect and so on. The stone stopped there and Moses took and put his garments on and, and started hitting the stone with a stick. By Allah, the tradition says, the stone still has some traces of the hitting, three, four, or five Marks. Now, that's a great story, but is it true? Most likely it's not, but it's here serving a purpose. Muslims believe, for example, a theological purpose where they're creating history. Muslims believe that all prophets in the Old Testament are perfect and without sin, including Muhammad. So, where David uh, committed adultery in the Old Testament, they say, oh no, that's... A prophet would never do that or, or uh, Moses had killed somebody. No, 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 a prophet. So they say they haven't sinned. So this doctrine of Isma or, protect, or uh, uh, perfection of the prophets that they say are within the Quran, Islamic traditions, they're trying to theologize this through telling these kinds of stories of perfection. And even in Moses' case, he is therefore vindicated. However, once again, The question must be asked, if Muslims are challenging the Bible and they are challenging the historical nature of our text, uh, can we really say that these traditions are actually historical? Or are the Muslims simply making up this material? In conclusion, we find that the Islamic traditions are not reliable for history. Uh, They're written too late uh, from the events they speak about. Uh, these Sahih traditions, these authoritative traditions, they're written by non-Arabs who are trying to explain what had happened in Saudi Arabia during Muhammad's time, though the authors were not even in uh, in Arabia. The traditions seem to have more and more details over time that they are, uh, the more they seem to know, the, the later it is, the hundreds of years they're removed, the, the story seemed to grow, and it suggests that the history has been invented, changed, and added to. The, the traditions contradict each other, even the ones going back to authoritative friends of Muhammad, such as Ibn Abbas. So you can have 80 traditions that are floating around in 923, and they disagree on which son it was. Or Sahih Bukhari has 600,000 traditions, reduced down to 7,397 traditions. People were making it up. There's such strange uh, sayings within the traditions that almost it almost seems like the traditions are mythical with Satan living in your nose and rocks running away and Moses beating rocks and so on. Again, the religious tradition of Islam does seem to be more of a monument to the destruction of its history than evidence of its faithful preservation. This is so important to understand because as, as we go into the stories and the, and the question of the Quran as we study this out, you'll see that there's so much information missing in that book that Muslims turn to these traditions in order to fill out and to complete their stories. Also, there's so little written about their prophet Muhammad in the Sirah that the Sirah and the Hadith traditions are the main body that they reference to learn about who Muhammad was. And since he is the perfect example for all mankind, the Muslims have to read these traditions to follow his life. They think that they have to follow these traditions to be obedient to God, to Allah. Now, as Christians, to follow the perfect example of all mankind, Jesus Christ, we go to the New Testament to see how he lived and how different we find that Jesus Christ was from Muhammad and how different we find the New Testament from the Islamic traditions. It was written by eyewitnesses with Jesus, within Jesus' generation. It does not contradict itself in, in the ways that Islam does in that sense and presents a clear story of who our Lord was. So, we must be so thankful for the Christian scriptures and we must share this with our Muslim friends and share the gospel, taking it to reach them for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and preserved it within history. We thank you that we can look and trust upon a reliable text that fits very well within its historical circumstances. Tens of thousands of archeological finds that confirm its credibility. And yet, Lord, when, as we're being criticized by the Muslims around the world for our Bible and for our text, that we find that even within the Islamic traditions, that it simply is falling to the ground. So Holy Spirit, we pray that as we compare these, uh, these different uh, traditions and stories, that we can bring them back to the historical Jesus and the historical prophets, the real stories, that you have provided us grace and salvation in your name. We pray. Amen.